The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, Ukrainian soldiers have been warmly welcomed to Kherson City amid jubilant scenes marking the end of more than eight months of Russian occupation. Pictures of Ukrainian flags being raised in the centre of the city are posted on social media just a month after Vladimir Putin claimed sovereignty over the entire Kherson region in southern Ukraine. The Kremlin insisted Kherson was still part of Russia after announcing it had withdrawn all of its troops and equipment from the city in the early hours of Friday. We discuss the news from Herzon and around Ukraine, and we also talk to author and historian Owen Matthews to hear his views on the origins of the conflict, the shifting politics inside the Kremlin, and possibilities for the near future after what looks like another astonishing Ukrainian victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 11th of November, day 261. And today, I'm joined by our senior foreign correspondent, Roland Oliphant, our assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley, and our guest, Owen Matthews. I started by asking Roland for the latest news from Hazan. Quite remarkable stuff, um, to be absolutely honest with you. Um, so to set the scene very, very briefly, uh, Wednesday afternoon, um, Sergei Shoigu um, and Sergei Surovkin, the uh, top military people in Russia announced we are going to withdraw from her son. Um, we all thought, okay, that's a big operation. That's going to take a week to put together. Um, late last night, Alexei Reznikov, the Ukrainian foreign minister, said, uh, I think it's going to take the Russians minimum a week to do this. Well, 5 a.m. this morning, they blew up the bridges um, and said, that's it, we're done with, everybody's out. Um, so it, it seems that there was a, a remarkably chaotic night on the, the banks of the Dnipro River. Um, a lot of fog of war. Um, I've got to caveat this. A lot of this is Telegram chat um, from Russian soldiers, from Russian bloggers, from pro-Ukrainian sources. Very difficult to verify. But it looks like there was a, there was a big mad dash to get as many Russians out as possible overnight, um, partly on the bridges, a lot of them using pontoons, ferries, any kind of boat that's available. Um, and then early this morning, uh, about 5 a.m.-ish, uh, the Russian high command said, right, that's it. Um, blew the bridges, um, and it's over. Uh, the Battle of Kherson is officially, I suppose you could say, over. The Ukrainians are advancing rapidly. We've just seen geolocated photographs. Um, the latest one I've seen is of a Ukrainian soldier um, outside a particular pub, um, so we know where it is, um, in a kind of western district of Kherson city. So, you know, he's about probably half an hour's walk from the city centre. Um, there are already Ukrainian flags up in, in, in Kherson city centre. Um, it is, um, what we could say officially it's over. This is the end of the Battle of Kherson that has been running for months and months. Um, the Ukrainians have won. It's not the real end, though, um, because despite the, uh, the Russian Ministry of Defence saying um, not a single man has been left behind, um, Every other independent source seems to disagree with that, um, not least there was a particularly agitated Russian soldier on his personal telegram channel last night um, 
who, who said the last order we got was put on civvies, put on civilian clothes, and it's every man for himself. Um, he was extremely angry, um, really mouthing off against uh, the high command. There's um, pro-Ukrainian sources um, saying that there's pro- that most of the Russians got across, but maybe there's maybe up to 4,000 Russians still in the city. No one really knows. Um, and, and that is probably only going to become clear in the next few days. Um, and I will refer listeners once again to um, the Ukrainians' frustratingly efficient um, information security policy. Um, I, journalists will not be in there, um, I would guess, going on past experience for at least a few days. So it's going to be difficult for us to get our own eyes on the ground um, telling you exactly what's happened. Um, but that's the way we are. So, so in brief, um, a very rapid Russian withdrawal, um, looking like a collapse. Um, the end, the very rapid end of uh, one of the most hard-fought battles, we're talking weeks and weeks and months, of this war. Um, and, well, I, I'll leave it for you to decide the significance of that. But those are the facts this morning and, and, and where we are at this moment. Thanks very much, Roland. Francis, do you want to come in on that? Yes, I would echo everything that Roland has just said, and, and good afternoon, everyone, I should say. Um, I, I think this is a really significant moment for the reasons that Roland's just uh, highlighted, but also, as we spoke about at length yesterday on the podcast, the symbolic significance of this we knew would be very important, and we're now really starting to see that visually in a, in a way that, that really resonates with a lot of people. We didn't have that when we were talking at this time yesterday, but now, as Roland was saying, we're seeing very striking imagery of, of flags being put up at central civic buildings in Hezon, of, of triumphant Ukrainian soldiers marching through key parts of it. So I think that as the, the, the day wears on and indeed the weekend, I think we can expect the symbolic resonance of Herzon and, and the sense of this being a defeat for the Russians, whether completely accurately or not, to, to be um, more strongly defined in the narrative of this war um, that some of the questions that we were raising yesterday will I think dissipate somewhat um, as people recognize the, the the symbolic significance of this so um, as Roland was saying a very very important moment it feels. Roland can I come very quickly back to you do you get a sense uh, ha- have you seen anything yet of how uh, Russian media has reacted to this what's what's the, the feeling in, in Russia about what's happened? Uh, <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm, A, I'm not in Russia, um, so I can't tell you what the man in the street is saying. Uh, and B, um, frankly, no, I, I, I haven't actually been trawling through uh, the pages of Komsomolskaya Pravda and, and Channel 1 this morning. I've been, I've been trying to keep up with the, the very rapid developments um, as they happen. Um, so I, 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 would, I would hesitate. I, 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 would, I would hesitate to, uh, to try and give our listeners a definitive account of of Russian emotions over this. Um, but I would say it is, it's safe to say that it's, it's never nice to see your army um, in retreat. Um, I, I think that is a, a reasonable assumption. Thanks, Roland. Francis, can I come back to you? Uh, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the implications for, for this victory uh, on negotiations. Um, and there's been some, some interesting things to discuss around that coming out of Ukraine. 
Yes, thank you, David. I spoke yesterday at length about the the fissure, as it were, uh, that's developing between perhaps the the Ukrainian stance on this idea of of, a, of peace and perhaps some of of Ukraine's Western partners. I spoke at length yesterday about the remarks of Mark Milley, the head uh, of the Joint Chiefs of Defence in the US, uh, about this idea of perhaps this being a good moment to uh, to take stock and to um, think about some sort of negotiated peace. As I expected then, and, and talked about, there is a real gulf here um, between the Ukrainian side and and uh, some others on this view of, of whether negotiations are the way forward or not. Ukraine thinks it is winning this war and that the end end game is Putin to be overthrown and for some kind of peace deal to be settled once they have not only removed them from the past the pre-February 24th borders, but indeed actually removing them from Crimea as well. So um, that, but that is obviously not the view that is shared, perhaps in in amongst some partners in Europe who feel that you know the sooner this war ends, the better. So there there are tensions in play. And just speaking to this, since the podcast yesterday, uh, the uh, Ukraine's top prosecutor has said that resuming negotiations with Russia is not impossible, but he is looking to establish a special international tri- tribunal to hold Russia accountable for the since the war began. And he goes on and talks about the the scale of the suffering. And again, I just wanted to underline this point because it's been a very consistent line of the Ukrainians since the beginning that you know, war crimes have been committed in their country. The terrible scenes in, in Butcher are, are scenes not seen in Europe for uh, a very substantial period, indeed truly horrific. And they don't just want this to be seen as another war. They want this to be seen as a fundamental war crime that sees Putin, uh, you know, sent to The Hague. And, and so it's very difficult to see a way in which that view can be reconciled with one that still sees Putin in power and for there to be some negotiated peace. Now, some people will argue that that's actually not for the Ukrainians to decide because they will say, well, this is entirely dependent on Western support. But I don't think that that strength of feeling is 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 really being truly appreciated by some Western commentators. So I just wanted to draw attention to that. But in the background to this, as I spoke about the US yesterday, there's still this discussion about the US in back channels urging Ukraine to use this window of opportunity for peace talks. And that is, of course, in the context of the G20, which, as I said yesterday, whilst Putin will not be attending in person, the expectation is that he will be attending virtually. And some people, some people see this as a sign that the international community is 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 willing to to uh, open up more lines of communication shall we say with moscow um and other european capitals now as i say that is disputed but that is how some are interpreting this so in the political space this is a really significant moment i know i say that all the time but this feels like a very significant moment and the herzon significance is that it changes the tone of the discussion if you imagine how things would be at this moment if Herzon was looking like a defeat for Ukraine. I think that the discussions of negotiations would be far, far um, stronger than they have been. But indeed, that argument, I think, is being quite consistently undermined, at least in the information war, as a consequence of this Ukrainian victory. So, as I say, complicated picture, but a significant one. Well, thank you, Francis. Roland, do you have any, anything you'd like to add or shall we move to our guest, Owen Matthews? 
I, mean, I think I think I think that more or less covers it. We we do have a front page um, on on the theme of these um, this this quote unquote window of opportunity um, that the Americans seem to be pushing um, on the Ukrainians. And I think I, I think Francis has more or less summed up what I think is is the big perception gap. The basic big perception gap is Western officials thinking, look, at some point we're going to have to sit down with Putin and we're going to have to talk to him. Um, that's just the way the world is we've got to live with it um and there is a, a very strong feeling in kiev that um a you don't understand this russian regime they're not interested in talking really um and they're not interested in in our red lines um and they have to be defeated on the battlefield and secondly you don't understand um and we understand by the way because we are ukrainians and we're here and we're you know we know russia and russians um we understand how fragile that regime is um, and actually a defeat, the continuation of all these defeats on the battlefield after Kharkiv and Kiev and now Kherson, um, that is going to be felt um, back in Russia and actually the world will be a much safer place um, once once that regime um, has crumbled. Um, but, but with that, um, yes, I think we should move on to our, to our guest. Absolutely. Just very quickly, Francis, I know you want to come in on that and then we'll, get, then we'll go to Owen. Forgive me, just very, very briefly, I think Ronan's absolutely right uh, on, on this central tension. And indeed, just one thing I think that's worth saying is that uh, on this perception gap... There seems to be, I think, a, a, a belief in the West that actually now Russia have sustained their economy, fortified their economy enough that they would be able to continue this war for months, years, and uh, in, in such a manner that, in a sense, things will be consistently as they are. And I think it's important that we do challenge that view. As we've talked about in the past, there's that very influential and persuasive Yale paper that talked about just how fractured the Russian economy has become as a consequence of what has occurred uh, in the, since the invasion in Ukraine. And I think there's no reason to think that if this war, God forbid, were to last another six months or a year or even longer, that really the status quo, as we understand it now, would be the same. Think how much has changed in the last six or seven months from when the war began. There's no reason, I don't think, to think that things are going to be consistently the same. But it seems that there are some Western leaders who think that what how things are now in terms of the strength of the Russian regime and the, the strength of the Ukraine regime is going to remain consistent. I don't think that's the case. And I think so. this whole argument, I think, is built on something of a false premise. But anyway, let's definitely go to our guest. <laughs> thank you, Francis. Thank you, Roland. So, Owen, thank you so much for coming in. You're a journalist, a uh, writer, historian. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit about your background, your career, before we get, get on with the questions? Well, I've been a... F- Hi, thank you for having me on. Uh, I've been a foreign correspondent uh, for Newsweek magazine for 25 years. I was Moscow bureau chief uh, for a large part of that period, and I've been traveling to Russia since, and I was at the Moscow Times before that. Um, I just wanted to pick up a on a couple of things that have been said. Um, I don't disagree on, basically, uh, on anything that Francis and Roland have said, except that I would um, actually suggest that we turn it on its head and see this thing from Moscow. And we're talking about a perception gap. And as uh, Roland rightly said, things will not really change. Putin will not have a strong incentive to sue for peace until he's defeated in the battlefield. But actually, from the Russian perspective and from the Russian media point of view, this is not a battlefield defeat. It's obviously not a victory. It's obviously not a success. But it's certainly being spun as an orderly retreat. So, in fact, the Russian, the Kremlin line is that actually they've deprived Kiev of a victory. They have reorganized their forces. They've withdrawn from an untenable position. They've reinforced 
their positions on the right bank of the Dnieper, making it more difficult for Ukraine to push through the rest of Kherson Oblast and, and, and towards Zaporozhye. So actually, <clears throat> the, I don't think that in the eyes of the Russian people, uh, or the eyes of, certainly not in the eyes of the Kremlin media, they actually have suffered a decisive setback. I mean, it's going to be spun. And really importantly, one of the real bellwethers about all of this war has been the reaction of pro-Kremlin uh, uh, nationalists who have been very strictly and we've been very surprisingly and very strongly critical of Sergei Shoigu and the, and the conduct of the war. And it's really quite telling that, the, that these people have actually, you know, been praising a lot of the telegram channels, have actually been praising and saying, like, it's very important. To, uh, um, the, the head of Wagner Group, Prigozhin, has actually been saying, like, it's very important to save the precious lives of our soldiers and regroup. So actually, the, um, while it's completely true to say that the Russians have suffered a, uh, a serious defeat, it's not the disaster that's actually going to force Putin to... To, to, to sue for peace. Um, I think the much more telling thing is that actually, you know, recent polls, I mean, there's a whole, you know, um, one has to take polls in any authoritarian society you know, with a major pinch of salt. But actually, there are strong indications that support for the war is slipping. Uh, it's slipping, I think, because the uh, uh, you know, people are starting to tire of it, not because anything disastrous is happening. And I was in Moscow until uh, I spent most of this war uh, in in Moscow, part of it in Kiev, but mostly in Moscow. And the uh, I was I, I left in uh, in the middle of October uh, for uh, a month ago, and the, the really striking thing was the basic invisibility of the war. In Moscow, and the invisibility of sanctions. So, uh, France has referred to that Yale uh, study about the economic collapse of Russia. It's very true. This war and sanctions have robbed Russia of its future. They've absolutely poisoned Russia's economy in the root. All that is true, but we're actually talking about an eight percent predicted fall in GDP. It may actually be less. So that's compared to the scale of disasters that Russians have seen in their lifetimes. The average middle-aged Russian has lived through at least sort of five cataclysmic economic collapses. So there's not actually uh, a very strong, as yet, sort of economic disaster unfolding that would actually make Russians believe that they are actually need to urgently change their regime, I mean, for better or worse. And the final thing I'd like to pick up on from what Francis and Roland were saying was that uh, the world will be a safer place uh, once the Putin regime crumbles, um, says, says Roland. And I think... Says... says say... Ukrainian officials who I was quoting. <laughs> Sorry, I beg your pardon. No, no. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say, is that that's exactly what the Ukrainians think. But I think that that's certainly not what, for instance, the French think. But, and I think there's a rather large section of the, um, uh, of, of the American security establishment that also views that as a really terrifying outcome. And crucially, uh, one of the things that I reveal in my book, out, uh, Overreach, which just come out this week, is that actually right from the beginning of the war, there's been quite a strong uh, uh, back-channel contact between Beijing and Washington concerning the war and the uh, unspoken understanding has been that China has held back from economic and military support of Moscow on the premise that NATO does not get involved in the war on the ground in Ukraine. And that's really a very, uh, and as if we're talking about regime change in Moscow, I think that's a red line, not just because 
we're talking about a potentially unstable situation, but that's a very abstract concept, and we don't really know exactly what's going to happen in a post-Putin world. But certainly the Chinese are going to be incredibly unhappy about regime change in Moscow. And most crucially, I think the fear is, certainly in the Elysee Palace, and Macron has been saying since May, very controversially, he's been, you know, everyone's come down on him like a ton of bricks for this, for his cynicism. Uh, but Macron was saying as early as May, Putin must not be humiliated. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean that Macron likes Putin. Putin, he just is fearful, and his security people are telling him that a post-Putin regime may actually be more nationalistic and more aggressive than Putin himself, which seems inconceivable. But actually, in this, uh, I'm a historian, so I'm a little bit of a wary of historical analogies. But what if Putin is not Hitler? He's Kaiser Wilhelm II, the, the, the Kaiser of Germany, who got his country into, into a disastrous First World War, which they couldn't win. And that's followed by humiliating defeat. And then you have something much worse coming along. And that's certainly what the, 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 the French fear in certain sections of the American political establishment fear. So, um, um, the, indeed, there's a major perception gap between the Ukrainians and a lot of the West over the end game of this war and how desirable it is for a, a Ukrainian military victory in the field and how desirable regime change in, in, in Russia might be and how dangerous, in fact, for Europe and for Ukraine itself. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Owen. I was, just, I was struck by what you said about how the, um, the perception difference of the, the, the victory in Kherson. And I mean, would you say that the Ukrainians see it as almost as, you know, almost like their D-Day, whereas the Russians are trying to see it as, as their Dunkirk, that, you know, they've retreated, but they're not, they're not out there, they'll come back. Is that, is that fair? Is that, is that, I know you said you don't like historical analogies, but is, is, that, is that a fair one? <laughs> no, that's pretty much on the money. No, I, I, I agree. That's, um, and the, um, one of the most striking things about the, the, the war on the Ukrainian side, because um, I've been in Moscow more recently than I was in Kiev, but I mean, certainly the polls show that you know, an astounding number of Ukrainians, I think the latest one I saw late September was 93% of Ukrainians are convinced that they will be able to throw Russians out of every square centimeter of their country. And that's what they're being told by Vladimir Zelensky. Um, I personally think that that's deeply unrealistic. And actually, we're heading for a major train wreck when that illusion collides with reality. And at some point, there's going to have to be negotiations on the ground because there's a gigantic groundswell of very strong opinion that, you know, we must kick Russians completely out of our territory. And I, I, I wonder whether that's actually going to be militarily possible. And just, you know, looping back to Hirson, I mean, just the logistics, I, I, I went back to the Lower Dnieper a few years ago. I mean, it's, it's a really wide river. I mean, it's two kilometers wide. It's like massive, uh, massively wide and very difficult to cross. I mean, the, the, the Novokhovka Dam is still standing. Um, I'm not sure that there's a catastrophist predictions that the entire area will be flooded because in fact the the, the, the the step of the dam is actually only four and a half meters it's not like 40 meters it's not a gigantic body of water behind that that dam it's quite a low dam but the point is that actually the idea of crossing that river you said they see it as their d-day it'll be their d-day if they actually cross the water and take the east bank of the of the river but that's militarily and i'm not a soldier but i'm a military analyst but i mean that's you know clearly going to be an amazingly difficult challenge especially if the russians of retreaters they seem to have in relatively good order at least without massive losses from Kherson and actually re redeployed on the east bank of the Dnieper. So the Ukrainians have a massive, massive military uh, challenge ahead of them to push further than Kherson. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. There's so many, so many questions. Um, can, can, can you take us, can we, can we leave what's happening in Kherson and today's news behind for a second? Um, you've written a little bit about the period of time during the, uh, during the COVID pandemic 
um, when we know that the, the famous germaphobe Vladimir Putin was was largely isolated from from his elite, and his emergence from that uh, that separation um, seemed to seem to I don't know how to put it exactly, but uh, coincide with with a with with his new sort of historical political vision for what he wanted Russia to be and what he wanted Russia to do. Can you tell us what you think happened in in that infamous COVID bubble? Well, it's 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 very it's very clear that actually this war was fought was launched uh, by Putin for the same reason that every autocrat ever, ever launches a war because they thought they could win it because they underestimated the enemy and they overestimated their own capabilities. Uh, there was also a sort of undercurrent of imperial and historical thinking that uh, Putin uh, developed while he was the lockdown. But the basic bottom line of this of the whole build up to the war is groupthink. And the decisions of an autocrat and a very small number of people around him who believed what they were being told by their own you know, security apparatus. And what they were being told was uh, that the Ukrainians would meet them with open arms, that the Zelensky government would be easily toppled, that they were massively bribing everybody in sight and handing out millions of dollars to various corrupt Ukrainian officials and the security establishments and the, and the government. And in fact, over 700 of them have been prosecuted since uh, by the Ukrainian authorities for, mm-hmm. for, for taking Russian money. Uh, so Putin actually had rather, in his own mind, uh, rather good reason to believe that he could succeed because he thought that, like any human being, the future would be like the past. And actually, in 2014, I was there. I'm, uh, I'm sure Roland was there as well. There, there were actually massive pro-Russian demonstrations in in the Dnipropetrovsk, in Kharkiv, in Odessa. There were. There was a very strong anti-Maidan anti-Ukrainian nationalist feeling in the east of Ukraine and, and strong, quite strong pro-Russian feeling. The problem for Putin was this time it really was different. When they actually went in, they discovered that the Ukrainians were you know, not welcoming them with open arms, that Zelensky didn't flee and so on. But just to answer your question about COVID, the point is that, that um, the story of the uh, Kremlin administration had is in a nutshell that Putin had been surrounded by people Who's you know clever people who often disagreed with him? They had different agendas. There were different there were different sort of projects over his twenty years in power. You know, sort of nanotechnology and sort of world conservatism. There were various sort of things that the hobby horses that the Kremlin rode. But the common view, the, the the common theme of all these of all of these projects was that they were prosecuted by they were they were pursued by people who had an essentially sort of postmodern, quite consumerist attitude to ideology, and. There was, you know, we'll take a little bit of Soviet nationalism here, and we'll have a bit of Russian orthodoxy here, and we'll sort of you know, put it all together and sort of bamboozle the people. And that was the story of Vladislav Sulkov, who was a he was a great Kremlin ideologue until the beginning of 2020. So that there, there was a, it was essentially a cynical project run by people who had been brought up in the 1990s Moscow in the media uh, world, and those people that were pushed out, and the only people that were left in the room around Putin. They had always been there, by the way, you know, like the barman in The Shining. They were always there. The scary securocrats that have worked for, with Putin since the 1970s, you know, about people like Alexander Bortnikov, the current head of the FSB, Nikolai Patrushev, the former head of the FSB, and Putin himself, also a former head of the FSB, by the way. So the COVID just exacerbated that groupthink and just sort of sealed it in a bottle. So Putin found himself surrounded by a very small number of 
advisors. And particularly, there was a, a billionaire called Yuri Kovalchuk, who is also known since the 1990s, who himself, as, as, as we know from people around him, as, is personally extremely interested in mystical nationalism and orthodox destiny of Russia and all of this stuff. So Putin, in that sort of COVID bubble, found himself more isolated even than he had been before. And those sort of cynical pragmatists that had surrounded him before and actually maybe sort of gave, given him different steers and actually reminded him that all of Russia's greatness that he talks about in his rambling historical essay, all of that greatness has been predicated on Russia's economic engagement with the West. Those people were no longer in the room, literally, physically. And that's the story of the COVID isolation. He came out uh, believing his own, he'd, he'd, he'd drunk the Kool-Aid. He'd finally sort of bought into this vision that had formerly been peddled as a, as, as a, as a sort of, uh, as, as a sort of postmodern sort of potpourri of, of, of rhetoric. Um, but Putin actually really came to believe it. Very quickly, Francis Sternley, I know you, you want to um, come back on some of this and, and, and maybe ask a question. Yes, yeah, so it's really interesting hearing Owen's perspective on this. Um, my question actually is is a slightly different one. Um, and it's it's one, one of the, the future of Russia, really. We spoke yesterday uh, about on, on this podcast about the the planting of russian fascism in in the country now and and one that will almost certainly outlast putin given how he's imprinted this in schools and universities and everything else i just want to ask a very simple question which is do you think that there's a, often a, a view that's been articulated by by some that it's impossible for liberalism to ever be planted in russia that it is impossible due to its culture due to the fact that it wants to be governed from the top all of this kind of stuff i just want to ask what your perspective on that is as somebody who has lived in lived in moscow for that length of time lived among the Russians. What's your take on on Russia's future and whether it is possible for a more liberal democratic Moscow to ever emerge? Well, that's that's a brilliant question, Francis, because actually the the truth is, and what people tend to to overlook, is that um, Putin is actually, along with Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Viktor Orban, actually an enormously successful populist. He's he's a Has an runs an authoritarian regime, but actually, the key to his success is the Kremlin's absolute obsession with opinion polling. It sounds paradoxical that someone who has who has eliminated any kind of political opposition or free press would actually pay so much attention. But in fact, it's very important to the Kremlin, and it has always been very important to Kremlin to the Kremlin to actually. You know, study what the Russian people think, and the really, the really one of the really telling things that, that, that I write about in my in my book, for instance, when you go back to like pre-Putin, is in the fall of nineteen in the in the, in the that's twenty five years of working for the Americans for you in the autumn of nineteen ninety nine before Putin uh, came came to power. There was a, a poll that asked Russians nineteen ninety nine pre-Putin what are the things you want most and the number one thing was to end the economic uh, economic crisis that was then uh, engulfing Russia. And the second one was to restore the greatness of the Soviet Union. 1999. So that's one of the that's one of the things that's so scary and really important to bear in mind is that you, you take away Putin, but but actually Putin, his the secret of his power is to tap into like a very deep rooted sense of grievance of national humiliation. There's actually the 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 90s scarred Russia as everyone who's ever worked in Russia sees very clearly. We even sat down with us for a conversation with a Russian who lived through that period. Like those, that scar is really deep, and even 
the 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 telling thing is that even sort of international smart clever russians you know who are our personal friends and they will actually find themselves you know you probe and you probe and you realize that actually at a certain level they're actually even quite liberal russians are, are pleased that their country is no longer humiliated and, and it's respected it's really extraordinary how how deeply held that uh, that is so to your question about you know um liberalism um if it had not been for putin Russia could have had a very different future. That's definitely true. So what he did was he took all those very dark instincts, the dark instincts of people that made Vladimir Zhirinovsky, ultra-nationalist ultra politician, one parliamentary, came number one in the first in parliamentary elections in, in 1993. That sort of dark strain of ultra-nationalism, and he took it and he made it the, the, the philosophy of, 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 of the government and uh, crushed liberalism. So the, the, but but the, the, the real problem is that when we talk about post-Putin Russia, and when we actually talk about the Russian opposition, you know, we, we like to think of someone like Alexei Navalny, poisoned, imprisoned opposition leader. He is liberal, he's pro-Western, as the quote-unquote leader of the Russian opposition. But actually, the sad truth is that even when Navalny himself last run for, around for office, uh, it was 2011 or thereabouts, the local municipal elections in Moscow, Navalny, the leader of the liberal opposition, got I mean, the, the, the votes was, was rigged against him, and so on and so on. But nonetheless, you know, the, the um, he got uh, less than twenty percent of the votes in Moscow, the most liberal city in Russia. So, um, so the, the simple answer to your question, Francis, is that um, unfortunately, I don't really see um, liberalism as a serious political force in Russia. Not only because it's been so systematically repressed under the 20 years of the Putin regime, but also because the, um, the, the Russian people actually need to be, bizarrely enough, sort of you know, deconditioned. In fact, um, you, you might even use the word sort of denazified, which is, of course, Putin's, what, what Putin's stated object, objective in, in Ukraine. But it's actually, it's really Russia that needs to be deprogrammed much more than Ukraine. That's really interesting hearing your take on this. Uh, my next question, therefore, is is what? how should the West, how should those who are more liberal-leaning in, in Russia, and of course there are some that we see, those who ran Memorial, for instance, those who um, have been imprisoned for, for fighting you know, for, against Putin, how do we strategically need to think about planting a more or a, a process of denazification and making people wake up to an alternative what is that 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 strategic approach that needs to be adopted do you think well if you um if you look back to what happened in the 80s, um, Soviet Union loses 15,000 men in Afghanistan in a disastrous war that they start to lose right from the get-go. They, they start to lose right from basically one year in. Um, they get their backsides kicked by the Afghan Mujahideen, and that gets worse and worse. And it's not a problem for the Soviet regime until suddenly it is a problem. And what changes? What changes is you have glasnost. Mikhail Gorbachev comes to power in, in, in 1985, suddenly 86. People start to write about the terrible Afghan, the losses of in, in the Soviet Union's you know, pointless campaign in Afghanistan. So actually, the, the, the simple answer is, is glasnost. You know, you actually have, you know, um, a media space that actually allows that those those sort of discussions to happen, and that's precisely why. And the Kremlin you know, knows that very well, and that's precisely why they've been so hysterically and so brutally effective in actually suppressing any kind of international media or in any in any kind of pluralism in in in, in public debate. Um, but the, the the there is hope. I don't want to be the total Cassandra. 
the really crucial thing is that the fate of Russia historically, I mean, going back to 1905, 
I'm going to be ready to go to prison, get my head cracked, and you're jeopardising not only yourself, but your family, um, your workplace, your students, if you're a professor or something. Um, do you think there is a chance that the, the great passive mass that you were talking about will, if not revolt, uh, maybe maybe more technocratically uh, impose a, a palace coup d'etat or something like that? The, the, that's that's also an excellent question because I mean the uh, we're, we're talking about two slightly different things. We're, we're, we're talking about what people might desire and what is achievable. Exactly. So the, the, the and and the, the answer to that question is you know is stakes. Like who's you know, what is at stake and for whom? So for people who are like in the middle class, you know, like sort of most of the people that you and I know in Moscow, you know, that that what's at stake is you know their their future prosperity and you know are they going to be able to go on a holiday in Italy? Like you know, they're, they're, are, they're, are their children going to have like a normal future and that kind of thing? Uh, what's at stake for the people at the top of the Kremlin? is much more in fact it's their it's business empires yes. it's, it's everything it's their lives so unfortunately the problem is the people with the guns and the power what and the money are very willing to fight for it and that's so so it's so it's really a question of you know there's this little tension between you know what people actually want um um in in the in the capitals and what they're willing to fight for because the people at the top of the kremlin really are willing to fight and there's also a really imp- important distinction to be made is that there's actually sort of um, uh, a strong ultranationalist potential threat from outside the Kremlin and also from inside the Kremlin as well to Putin's power. So, the, so if you're talking about actual regime change, there's, um, you know, the people uh, in the Kremlin, as I said earlier, are like they're not stupid. They're extremely sensitive to polls. So if they see that this is going wrong and the minute that there's a critical mass of people inside the top of the Kremlin that actually see that they, some that their position that might be strengthened by replacing Putin with some sort of non-Putin, then that will happen because they will do it before it's done to them, for sure, to preempt. You know, the last thing they want is like an ultra-nationalist revolution done by the headbangers. Although, by the way, there was a... A, a revolution executed by a very small number of headbangers in, 19, in, in, in October 1917. Unfortunately, that has that there is precedent for that. You know, for for uh, for you know armed and extremely motivated you know tiny groups of people to take over states. That's literally happening. Well, exactly, and you can see you can see people like that kind of talking about that kind of thing, right? And they're li- literally speaking about it openly. I mean, still Corbyn said like there may come a moment when we'll have to seize power in in, in Russia. I mean, it's terrifying. Yeah. So the Kremlin is very cognizant. They definitely don't. Want Want that to happen, but the really key thing is that, paradoxically, actually, the um, the Kremlin, I think, is uh, in on one level, you know, somewhat more pragmatic than their than, than Putin's ideological sort of screed of, of July of twenty twenty one might suggest, because I think that what is important to the people around Putin, I mean, Putin is already seventy years old. You know, there is, you know, he's on the clock. He's already three years older than the average. Yeah, he doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. He's a little guy. He's not like a big guy. You know, little dogs live longer. I mean, all of this. That's true. But but nonetheless, you know, sort of, you know, the lame duck Putin is not, you know, a million miles away. It could be like three years, five years, whatever. But but the point is that that's very much on the Kremlin's minds. And the fact they've been discussing it since 2019, it's sort of been a kind of a subject and controversial, obviously extremely controversial subject. Like what, how will the, Putin elite preserve their power beyond Putin itself. And uh, so in that sense, actually, what's more important to them is not actually who replaces Putin, but like who gets to replace Putin, like, you know, whose interests are they acting in? 
And in terms of the of 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 the war, I mean, I think clearly, you know, anyone who's somewhat rational, I mean, think you know, going up to sort of mid to high levels of the Kremlin, realize that this is could be a complete train wreck. It's 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 a disaster. It's and, and they need to somehow get out of it. Um, but what's a little bit concerning is that actually Putin could have. Yeah, like so rather like Yasser Arafat, he's not lost an opportunity to lose an opportunity. He could have declared victory at the end of the first week of the war. He really could have. He could have declared victory as soon as they took the this is a chance to see then yes. There's lots of moments when he could have just stepped off this carousel and said, you know, my, my work here is done. Thank you. Goodbye. And, you know, uh, that would have put enormous pressure, by the way, on Ukraine's Western backers if he'd sued for peace. And this, so this thing about Putin's rationality and his 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 suddenly discovered he suddenly discovered this ability to screw up everything right um, um and I, I want to i don't want to ambush you or anything but but my next question is um could you tell me why you were so catastrophically wrong about the war i mean I, and, and I'm, I'm i'm singling i am singling you out because you're here and, and you've just written a book but I, it's important to say you're not alone i think a lot of us who who were steeped in Russia and steeped in Moscow and spent our, our whole professional lives kind of thinking about what the Kremlin's going to do and opinion polls and Alexander Navalny and what's going to happen in 2024 and, um, and, and, and the succession question and all of this kind of, kind of, you know, lived and breathed Russia and Russian politics for years. A lot of us in the run-up to this war listened to what, the, what, what American and British intelligence were telling us and just thought, really? Oh, come on. I mean, really? It's just not the Putin we know. And it turned out, I mean, I, I, I personally felt when it finally happened, I thought, well, you know what? The people who got this right were the kind of the war nerds, right? The, the Michael Kaufmans of this world, the people who kind of count tanks and look where they are. And I said, no, no, th- th- this looks like the real deal. And then there were people like you and me thinking, they're going, well, no, I mean, look, this is just not the Putin we know. He's clever. Look, he's got the West where they want. They're, they're, they're running to Moscow to talk to him. They're, they're finally taking him seriously. He's got what he wants. Um, of course, you know, to, to have a war now would throw it all away, but he did, um, which means we're completely wrong. So why? <laughs> well, um, the, I mean, you, you, you and I are reporters. I mean, you know, we... We're not, you know, analysts in the sense that we don't have theories. You know, we 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 actually just you know, go with what people are telling us and are reporting and our well-informed sources. So, I mean, I I don't want to be defensive about this because I was certainly wrong. That's definitely true. I said that Putin was not going to do it. Um, but on the other hand, certainly uh, in my defence, you know, a very large section of you know the the senior Kremlin people also believed. And in fact, I mean, as I say in my in my book, Overreach, there's I quote a source who had lunch with Dmitry Peskov. Putin's press secretary on the first Monday of the war, and uh, this person is a is a, like a, has known Putin for twenty years, like a close personal inside friend of Putin's, so inside of uh, of Putin's, and Peskov told this person that at that fateful Security Council meeting on February twenty first, where he Putin sort of madly berates his his and uh, browbeats his security establishment, there were only four people, according to Peskov in the room at that moment that were that were aware of the full plan to decapitate Kiev. They knew that the you know, war was afoot. There was the, the Donbass. There was the, the, the whole thing was about, you know, are we going to just liberate the, the, the rebel republics? Are we going to go further than the borders and so on? And um, uh, you know, that, that, that was what most of, you know, the, the, those people were the most senior inside advisors, and according to Biscoff, even they did, were not appraised of the full the, of the full war strategy. So, did you get the names of the four? 
Yeah, of course. It's, I mean, it's, 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 it's Putin, Shoigu, Patrushev, Bortnikov. Uh, I mean, sorry, and, and Narishkin's plus Putin, so four, four apart from Putin. Narishkin being the, the foreign intelligence chief. So the, um, the point is that um, uh, it was actually a very closely held secret, or the full scale of the, uh, the extent of the war was a closely held secret from even from within, even, even within the Kremlin itself. But um, my reasons for... Th- believing my sources to be on the money about um, there not being a, um, a war, a full-scale invasion, were probably rather the same as yours. But I mean, because I was actually physically in Moscow when it when the invasion happened. So, and there was no preparation. I mean, this is my sort of big thing, is that there was bizarrely no build-up and no preparation. And among the sources that I was speaking to was, you know, uh, were people like Alexei Vinidiktov and uh, senior editors of Russian state television channels. And I thought, like, well, and one of whom is one of my sort of uh, protagonists of, 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 of my book, uh, under a pseudonym. But, you know, you, I, I assume that if the Kremlin is preparing a full-scale uh, invasion of Ukraine, there would be some kind of, like, sort of propaganda build-up that would somehow sort of uh, pave the way to this and it didn't happen i mean literally like, even like sort of 48 hours before it happened no senior editor of any state-controlled russian media knew a thing about it which i which is remarkable in fact and it's very strange and the reason why i think actually in retrospect is because they thought it was going to be over for three days it's the same reason why they gave their troops three days rations they thought it was going to be like an aggregated military coup you know more than an invasion they thought that it was all going to be over by the, by the shouting very quickly, and they would decapitate the Zelensky regime. But anyway, no, you're 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 right. I was I was completely mistaken, and I, uh, I think perhaps overestimated Putin's rationality, which is your key point. Is like suddenly, you know, Putin rolled the dice. Um, but I think uh, it leads to a sort of bigger question, and that is, you know, what happened to Putin? You know, the great strategic genius. And actually, I think if you if you unpack his actions um, in in Syria, in in Crimea, in Georgia, actually, what you realise is that you know he wasn't smart. He was just very lucky. He was very fortunate. He's, he, 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 he every play that he made, you know, went right. So you know he just was had a consistent. He was like the luckiest statesman in the world. You know, in his intervention in Syria happened. You know, was enormously significant with one squadron of airplanes. By the way, it's like thirty-six planes, like in a tiny military force, two thousand people on the ground, totally changed the war. Because that, you know, if if you, if you bring a, a gun to a knife fight, like you know, you win it because you've got your 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 your, your Suhoi's twenty-fours, and they have you know Kalashnikovs. You know, bang, he changed the tide of the war, but only because America was not interested in getting involved. Same with Crimea. I mean, he occupied Crimea, but actually. Um, you know, because you know, Kiev, Kiev was it was in in, in chaos. The, the the West was divided. They were still addicted to Russian gas. They signed Nord Stream two deal a year later. You know, he, all of his calculations come right, and then suddenly he makes it's like a gambler. You know, the stakes are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and he just thinks that he just you know he he, he, he keeps playing black and black black is coming up, and then suddenly like bang, it's red, and your gamble has not paid off, and you've just lost more than you've ever gained in your, all of your previous gambles. Do you think, um, c- considering that, cons- considering 
okay, Putin just didn't tell anybody, and that's why we all genuinely, for very good reasons, I mean, you mentioned the fact there was no preparation on state TV. We all noticed that. We were all going like, well, you know, they would be talking about Ukrainian Nazis and, and, and having documentaries on Channel 1 well, about... kind of were as well, but for years. But not, not there, there was nothing that said, like, hold on, you know, they're, they're preparing the public for this. Um, so the signs weren't there. But, I mean, do you think this... Uh, it's it's a what, what do the Americans say a teachable moment. I mean, I mean, a moment for for people like us who've kind of made careers with Russia to uh, to remember that a lot of what we do is tea leaf reading, um, and that um, that you know we, we 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 did kind of fail. I mean, we failed for good reasons, I think. Um, <laughs> but 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 there is. I, I, what, so one of the one of the things that I always find myself coming back to when people ask me about what it's like covering the war at the front um, is that generally, to be absolutely honest with you, um, and it sounds like a failure because my job is to tell you what's going on. I just have no idea what's going on. Something went bang over there. Um, I have no idea. Everybody's frightened. Um, don't tell them that. Really. You know, don't tell them that. <laughs> but that's the reality. All right. It's it's incredibly difficult to know what's going on in a war. Um, it also seems to me that um, the past. How many months is it now? Nine months, eight months. Um, I deeply shook my kind of confidence in 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 my sense that I kind of I don't know what's going on in the Kremlin. It's a closed box, the presidential administration. But 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 you know, I have a sense of them. I have a sense of what they want and and where they're going and, and their character and stuff like that. Um, deeply deeply shook my confidence in that. Do you think? Um, do you think there's a need for a wider kind of kind of a bit of self reflection? Uh, on the part of, of the Russian watching community, um, well, I think that's uh, that, that's that's a good point, Roland. Because the the, the the point is that I mean, the, the the issue is really, um, you know, uh, how how can you predict the actions of a regime that is run by a very tiny group of people? And that um, the answer is, and one of the things that I found actually surprisingly easy when I was writing the book, like surprisingly uh, abundant, was actually those people do speak to the press so what you can do when you read the interviews like sort of loony conspiracy theories and crazy interviews of nikolai nikolai patrushev by the way like he he doesn't hold back like he, he we, right, we, right, we, we we know very clearly you know how sort of paranoid and crazy these people are so actually so bizarrely like why did we imagine that they wouldn't invade Ukraine, given how bonkers their statements are and how profoundly paranoid they are, and how you know both uh, Patrushev and Bortnikov and Putin himself are all. By the way, it's very important to emphasise this. They were convinced they went to war. They believe this is a defensive war against NATO aggression. And Viktor Zolotov, the head of the National Guard, former Putin bodyguard, very powerful uh, Silavik, one of the men of power that surrounds Putin, uh, said, uh, told NXT Vindictive a couple of years ago, Ukraine does not exist. Ukraine is, our, is Russia's border with, with the US. So those are the terms in which we think. And we sort of knew that. But I guess... Um, and of course, clearly, you know, General Mark Milley, as we know from the Washington Post, brilliant reporting, you know, his warnings 
were back in, in, in October of 2021 to the, in the White House briefing room, personally to Joe Biden, his warnings were absolutely on the money. The CIA, Bill Burns, actually just nailed it. And um, we, we will never know. We're going to have to wait for sort of Bob Woodward to come along in a couple of years to like, tell us what the inside track was in, in, in Washington and where they got their information from. But I mean, my understanding was that actually it was, like, it was not just one sort of single deep source, deep throat source. It was like actually a multiplicity of sources at different levels. The Ukrainians, by the way, have an interesting theory that actually some of the operational intelligence was in fact leaked to the Americans by Ukrainian security officials that had been bribed by the Russians and briefed on the invasion plans and then sort of and then turned code a second time. Anyway, that's a story that is we can't really report out at this moment in time. But the, but it's really true that, the, that the, the, the Americans had nailed it. But there's one really important distinction. And that is when we go back to the Ukrainians, when you you know, you and I have both spoken to various, you know, you, Zelensky's advisors, and, we, and I'm sure we both asked them, you asked them the same questions as I do. It's like, you know, who knew what? Like, did, what point did you actually think this is going to happen? And they said a really significant thing. I mean, I prepare our debate and teachable moment and so on. And actually it goes right back to the, uh, to the Mark Milley briefing. What he's briefing the president about is that Russia has a plan and is preparing an invasion. So they're, they're preparing a feasible feasible invasion but we don't actually know whether they're going to do it that's the difference and that's what the ukrainians were were, were worried about like they had no doubt that putin could do it they had no doubt that putin was was ready to do it operationally and these obviously build-ups were like you know insanely menacing and obvious and totally dangerous the one point that they didn't actually know for sure you know right up to the very beginning of the war was like uh, was Putin going to press the press the, the button on this? Because in fact, there's an entirely plausible situation, as you alluded to earlier, is that actually the only way that Putin could get anyone's attention was by taking this right to the very brink. Because, and it was working. Because he'd been, he, he'd been ignored so many times, including like the spring of that year. He said like, and now we're mobilizing 180,000 people. And, and, the, and the West has said like, oh yeah, whatever. Like, you know, we, we, sorry, Vlad, like, you know, we don't believe you. And, and then he does it again and they still don't believe him. So, so, so actually, you know, it's not irrational for Putin to actually see like, okay, now I'm going to really like scare the willies out of you, you know, and actually really do it. And maybe, you know, occupy the, the, you know, just occupy the rebel republics of Donbass and, and so on. But the actual final step, it was not clear to the Ukrainians, including to Zelensky himself, uh, you know, on the day that the Russian troops occupied those rebel republics, that he had a security council meeting with his top advisors. And according to the people I've spoken to, the same people that you've spoken to, you know, that meeting was really inconclusive. Just despite the fact that you know the Ukrainians had all that American information, like very detailed, they had their own information, they had their own spies inside Russia and so on. You know, on the day, on twenty third of February, when Russian troops are already in the rebel republics, the Ukrainians themselves did not know whether they're going to advance further. And and Zelensky that very evening made an incredibly moving speech to the Russians in his native Russian, saying, appealing to them, saying, like, sort of, you realize that you're on the brink of war, like let's not do this. So Zelensky clearly believed that actually Putin, until the very last moment, would actually not do it. Thank you so much, Owen. We're starting to run out of time, I'm afraid. Um, time has gone by so fast. Thank you so much. I've just got one more question. I want you to take you back to something you said quite early on about um, the about about the potential military future of this war. And I just wanted to put to you, I wonder if, well, 
considering what we've seen over the past seven months with the successful defense of Kiev, the sweeping counteroffensive in, in Kharkiv, one of the you know, most astonishing counterattacks in, in modern military history, and now the today the capture of her son. I mean, I'm, we're getting all this as, as Roland is saying, the social media feeds are lighting up. I'm mean, right now looking at an astonishing video of crowds of Ukrainians waving Ukrainian flags in, in the center of her son, opposite the administ- uh, the administrative buildings. Um, what you said about how potentially going to going south, looking at Crimea, you know that, that's very difficult. That's not possible. Every single obstacle, or the vast majority that have been put in the in the way of the Ukrainian armed forces, they have overcome in the in 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 the past seven eight months. I wonder. I wonder. Do you think? Do you think we still underestimate them or, or not? Well, obstacles. They haven't crossed the river yet. They crossed the Oskil. I was there. The Oskur? The Oskur is where they try to, they try to, you know, they, no one's crossed the, the Dnieper is the Dnieper. The, 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 this is a different the, the, thing. But, they, the, but the, the Russians tried to put a defensive line along the Oskur River following the, the Kharkiv offensive and the Ukrainians just swept them across. Okay, so that, but, um, yeah, That's a smaller right. river. <laughs> you're, Considerably you're, smaller. Yeah, you're, you're right. I, mean, the, the, I, I, I think the Ukrainians have been have been significantly underestimated. Um, and, but I think we also know that they're that they're they're clearly a better led, better 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 equipped, um, more motivated army. That's all true. Um, um, the, the 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 problem is that you know, as Adam Smith said, like, there's there's a lot of ruin in a nation. You know, the 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 however great the Ukrainians may be, and however operationally proficient they may be, the Russians just have you know that manpower and those, those supplies of dumb weapons and the artillery and so on, and they can just you know they they you know ultimately I think you know the, the the it's not unrealistic if the Ukrainians you know had infinite access to Western resources and Western arms they could probably beat the Russians back. The the question is you know what's what's going to be the price of that, and the political question is actually going to be become you know when they approach donbass there are areas of uh post 1991 ukraine that actually do not wish to be ukrainian i mean the clearly the annexation of crimea was outrageous and egregious and was terribly um and you know was was terribly illegal but the the fact is that the crimeans didn't really want to be ukrainians and they and they actually did want to be russians so the um once you raise that possibility then you of for instance crimea being leg- legitimately not part of ukraine then you open a gigantic can of worms for the ukrainians because you're actually then Paul, you know, uh, talking about where you can actually re- re- redraw the border reasonably, because the alternative to that is you're asking for Ukrainian uh, blood and NATO treasure to actually fight and compel you know, parts of Ukraine to rejoin a country of which they do, do not wish to, wish to be a part. I'm mean, speaking specifically of the rebel republics of the Donbass. I mean, I was there. You know, they really don't want to be Ukrainian. It's uh, despite the international borders. So that question is going to arise, and that's going to be the, like the critical debate over the over, over the the end game of this war politically. And unfortunately, the real problem is that any kind of surrender of territory is going to be totally politically unsurvivable, not just for Zelensky, but for anybody. That's going to be a totally that's going to that's, that's an absolute crisis, and uh, I fear that whatever the outcome of the war is, the Ukrainians will, or a large section of Ukrainians will claim to have been, or feel that they've been betrayed by the West. Thank you very much, Owen. Um, Roland and Francis, anything to add before we move to your final thoughts? Um, I think I, I do think that Owen's got a point about about sentiment in Crimea in particular, um, and in the so-called rebel republics that were established in 2014 probably um, simply because in those areas 
in those areas, the situation was much more ambivalent and lots of people have left. Those who were kind of pro-Ukrainian have left over the years. Um, but I, I, I think the two cases are quite distinct. I, I, think, I think in terms of population sentiment in Crimea, absolutely, you're, you're going to run into people who genuinely, genuinely um, want to be Russian. Um, quite, quite different to the areas we've seen liberated before. I'm, I'm not quite so sure about the republics in Donbass, um, partly because it's been such a black box, um, partly because, in my experience, the, the people in Donbass just desperately want to be left alone. Um, and, and, you know, they're one of the problems that, um, you know, Igor Strelkov-Gurkin, the, the Russian insurgent leader in the beginning of the war found there, was, was rallying enough men, finding enough locals to pick up arms um, to fight for him. I'm not, I'm not expecting that, you know, when the Ukrainians, if, if they surround and enter Donetsk itself, um, they're going to be greeted with flowers. Um, I do wonder whether there would be the, you know, I don't know, sentiment for an insurgency or, or whether people would just... Um, crack on with their lives but interestingly also just just on on the Donbass thing um, in my conversations in Kiev that, that's one of the things that's come up um, as the kind of the theory going around in their heads in Kiev that it would be the loss of the city of Donetsk or of Luhansk which might provoke the crisis in Russia um, and, and, and tell people in Moscow like we have lost bad we've lost big what the hell is going on not, not that might trigger it um, so they, they, they would talk specifically about Donetsk. I can imagine why Donetsk. It's kind of, kind of, yeah, yeah sure. you know, um, that just, just rep- re- repeating what I was told. You know, that those were the kind of thoughts in their heads. Um, that, that's the only thing I'd, I'd, I'd like to add. We could continue this conversation for for a very long time, but I know we're we're running out of time. We are. Thank you, Roland. Thank you, Owen. Francis, can I come to you for your final thoughts? Sure. Well, we've covered so much today and something just struck me when we talked about the First World War earlier and, of course, other themes as well, nature of democracy, what people are willing to fight and die for. And I'm just going to put my head above the parapet, if people excuse the the pun, really, and, and talk about how in Britain here it's it's Armistice Day when people pause to remember our war dead. It's marked with a, a two minute silence at 11 o'clock every 11th of November, the moment when World War One ended in 1918. Of course, that poetic timing, 11th hour, the 11th day, the 11th month was specifically chosen to mark what was supposed to be a full stop in human history, the war to end all wars. It wasn't, of course, and one often hears people say as a consequence that war is inevitable, that however egregious the horrors of human history, we're doomed to repeat ourselves as a species. However, I just think we should remember that that there is a view that that's a very oversimplistic take and one that I would probably agree with, that ultimately in the 20th century, certain lessons were learnt by millions of people, namely that democracy, the rule of law and self-determination are worth fighting for, not because they're culturally superior, but for pragmatic reasons. Throughout history, it's much rarer for a democracy to declare war on another democracy than it is for a democracy to fight a dictatorship. Indeed, it's almost always the case that a dictator or an autocracy will launch an invasion for their own self-aggrandizement. So the spread of democracy, not by force, but by persuasion through the experience of history, recognising its advantages for peace, stability, human flourishing, all of those things, is one of the most remarkable 
but forgotten things about the 20th century, I would argue. And many people would think now that those principles are at stake in Ukraine, for right or wrong. So for all of the cynicism um, that, that, that's so common at the moment, I just think it's important to remember that war is not inevitable. The, the relative peace that we've seen in the last seven decades was hard-earned and sustained through sacrifice and the proliferation of democracy and freedom. And if we want that to be enshrined for another 70 years, I would suggest that we remember that in the difficult months and possibly years ahead. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, so if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.